Oscar Foundation in Calgary, Alberta presents contemporary art through the production of innovative exhibitions, artist commissions, free educational programs, and exceptional art publications. On view until May 12th, Oscar Foundation presents the exhibition Wheatfield by Vancouver-based artist Neil Campbell, as well as Quantification Trilogy by Berlin-based artist Jeremy Shaw. Also on view in the Esker project space until April 28th is the powerful new work Morning Home by Glenna Cardinal. Neil Campbell's work is both sensory and sensational. His practice references artistic movements that range from conceptualism to minimalism, op art and color-filled painting to the language of advertising. Esker Foundation is pleased to present Canadian artist Jeremy Shaw's first solo exhibition in Calgary. The exhibition includes Shaw's three parafictional short films, including the Canadian premiere of I Can See Forever. For a digital companion to all the exhibitions, the Esker Foundation app can be downloaded for free at either App Store or Google Play. Listen to artists Neil Campbell, Jeremy Shaw, and Glenna Cardinal talk about their work in detail. Further information can be found at ESKER Foundation or by following at Esker Foundation. Admission and all programs are free of charge, and all are welcome. Welcome to MoMA's The Podcast. We are your hosts, Lauren Wetmore and Skye Gooden. In this episode, we're continuing our season-long exploration of the question, what makes great art? Speaking to essential voices of our time about their experiences of seeking it. What follows is an interview between Lauren and the British Ghanaian curator, critic, and art historian, Osei Bonsu. Based in Paris and London, Bonsu's exhibitions, publications, and collaborations focus on transnational histories of art. Osei is exceptionally eloquent, and he possesses a startling generosity of perception, qualities that I feel rarely go hand in hand in the art world today. I first met him on the balcony of a bar in Cairo, I was in Egypt producing a sort of fraught art event in which Osei was participating. And amidst wrangling all of these artists and dancers and curators in 40 degree heat through a week-long event in one of the most complex cities in the world, it's a testament to Osei's captivating presence that on this balcony, I stopped and we had a conversation that felt full of ease and insight. In this interview, Osei discusses how we have exchanged a generosity of thought for a culture of transaction. I loved his observation that when you're young and new to art, your experience of a great work is ahistorical, that it could be a Gilbert and George or a Picasso, but that you're rushing up to meet one another and meeting in a place outside of time. Here's Lauren Wetmore and Osei Bonsu in conversation. Okay. It's very curious. The house phone, uh, you can't hang up. You can answer, but you can't hang up. And I feel like that's a kind of um, a kind of perfect metaphor for where we are, you know, in terms of modern communications. It's like you have to take the call. <laughs> but anyway, uh, there was an experience, I think, of going to the Tate Modern for the first time. I guess it would have not long opened. And I remember getting two things. I remember distinctly two things. And they're two things that seem kind of rather arbitrary, but now stick out like a sore thumb as things that were, in fact, formative moments. One of which was encountering a large scale 
uh, Gilbert and George work that seemed to kind of tower over me. And I remember looking at it and thinking it was impossible for a human being to have made it. It looked so kind of mechanical and, and perfectly finished that I thought that it was something beyond art itself somehow. I think mm. before then I'd attributed great art to painting and sculpture. Mm. Um, and this in its kind of flatness um, seem to be, uh, I think, kind of alluding to the qualities of art that I think are, are kind of mixed with this idea of mass media or what it means to encounter an image that you feel that you've seen before, but it returns in another kind of way. So I think it was an experience I'd probably had before then with magazines uh, growing up in a small town quite far away from London, but then actually seeing a work in person that seemed to be able to kind of reproduce several images at once was a moment where I thought, oh, art can do all of these things. I guess it was a kind of postmodern encounter with the possibilities of art. I think it also probably reveals uh, the specificity of of my generational experience with art in that it was an experience that was very much shot through this kind of mega museum that probably couldn't have existed 10 or 20 years prior. Right. So did you feel as though it was sort of a moment of recognition, um, but one where you were recognizing things that you were interested in being given sort of a level of power or authority? Uh, perhaps it was that, but I don't think I recognized that there was a construction of power and authority around the work. I, I don't think I even knew what a curator was. And I think that was part of what made the experience such an instant one. It was just the kind of the scale, in a way, the monumentality of the work. And I say that, you know, in all seriousness, despite the fact that it was a it was effectively a, a, a 2D work, there was mm. something incredibly monumental about it, and maybe also relative to scale and me sort of looking up at it. But I but there was another kind of linked anecdote. I didn't mention that, you know, in the gift shop at that time they were selling, and I'm not sure that they still do, these sort of thick, uh, kind of chunky Tate pencils uh, with, <laughs> with Tate written on them. And I remember bringing it back um, to my sort of art class and, and presenting it to my tutor and saying, um, oh, you know, what do you think of this pencil? She's like, wow, you went to the Tate Modern. And then I had to make a presentation to the entire class about what the Tate Modern was. And it was part of a millennium project and that it was kind of this transformative thing. Um, and in the town I grew up in, there was no real uh, particular interest in, let's say, contemporary art. So that was a kind of, um, that would have been seen as a portal. And I think me presenting my experience through this pencil, the pencil kind of became, you know, a kind of linchpin for the, the anecdote. Um, it seemed a really uh, generative way of thinking about, I guess, kind of the magic of, of a place. I, I, you know, I still visit the same museums I always have. And, and you know, I think there's nothing like the first encounter, particularly when it's a museum that defines a particular moment culturally. Um, and I would say that's why I would draw in that particular experience. I think it was both an experience of the work of art itself and the context within which the art was shown, you know? Mm. And then to bring, like, to combine that idea of the museum and the idea of the pencil, you went on to be a curator and a writer. Yeah, exactly. And I think maybe there's something connected in that that, that art uh, tutor was the most kind of encouraging of anyone I'd met during uh, my... my uh, my school days and was always really clear that, you know, um, I should, you know, push at art and I should find my way. And she kind of introduced me to almost every artist I've ever known and, and loved. So it, I think that, that kind of early vocabulary that you get as a curator of the artists that you think about or the artists that you associate with important periods. Um, I very much got through her, whether it was Braque and Picasso or, you know, Lisa Milroy, Gilbert and George. I mean, in a way, it was a kind of provincial arts education. It wasn't a cosmopolitan one. Mm. And 
it certainly wasn't a very global one, mm. uh, but it was, and, and it became much more global as I kind of uh, grew into my career. But I think that at that time, that almost didn't matter. It was more the kind of newness of the encounter. And I think it's almost that exciting thing about encountering an artist that may have existed for, you know, hundreds of years, and yet it being entirely new for you as a student. I think there's something quite particular about that. You almost encounter every artist all at the same time. So it didn't really make a difference at that time whether Dali was living or dead. Somehow he would, his work was as much alive to me. So it, it, there, I think there is a kind of odd ahistoricism about one's early encounter uh, with art that's hard to put your finger on. I guess the, the alternative is, you know, if you were to receive a classical education and take that quite seriously. And I guess the way I viewed it is that contemporary art or modern and contemporary art seem to be quite separate from that classical education. And I don't think I associated the two very deeply because uh, one was, you know, more or less bound up in questions around representation, uh, religion, faith. Mm. Um, and then the other seemed to be completely other. It seemed to have the capacity to reflect on identity, gender, race, class, social politics, all of the things that I felt were very uh, urgent in Britain, even as a as, as a as a young student. Mm-hmm. Just to talk about your education, at what point do you feel like you were given the tools or given the knowledge that being critical of art was an important way of engaging with it? There was an assignment through an English lit class to write about uh, the Tempest, and there's the famous uh, German, uh, you know. A film production of The Tempest that sort of seared into my mind. And I think anyone who sees it feels a kind of um, affinity to that work. I remember having to write about it and, and being able to do a comparative analysis between The Tempest and, and, and Derek Jarman's interpretation of it. Maybe it was this idea that through film, Jarman had managed to kind of pin down the specificity of a work of literature and kind of do it all justice, but had kind of managed to turn it on its head and make it somewhat perverse and and kind of queer and interesting. And I think at the time, it, it kind of seemed to me that that was the point of, of great art, uh, to kind of twist slightly what we think of as a kind of pure experience. I always associated reading with like doing well and doing the right thing. You know, reading always felt not so much like a chore, but slightly as if it was designated to being orderly. Whereas looking at art, Mm. there was no kind of proper length of time for which one is supposed to look at art. Mm. There were no kind of rules about how close or how far back to stand. There are not a designated uh, number of pages as there are with literature. So with art, you kind of have this amorphous sense of of time that you can designate. And I think for a, for a, for a student, the interest is this boundless research that you can conduct, you know. Mm. What aspects do you think are important? in terms of references to art history or to literature, or do you think that's important at all? I think for me, it depends very much on the context I'm in. Mm. I can think of instances where I've done uh, studio visits with artists that kind of want to tell you almost every single thing they've read, every book (laughs) they've looked at, every play they've seen before they present the work, because somehow the work is so codified in itself that you couldn't possibly understand it without those references. And often I'm kind of keen to remind those artists that when the work leaves the studio, it will have to exist on its own terms. And I think even with a great wall text, um, you're still, the, the, the viewer still is more or less going to engage with the work, um, um, you know, in fact, you know, for what it is as an artwork. Um, and it's not to do a disservice to, I think, the importance of research-based practice. I've kind of time and time mm. again tried to champion and support artists that deal with research, particularly in in complex 
um, areas that that don't necessarily um, cohere easily with the art world's um, perceptions of what, um, let's say, you know, an appropriate subject matter should be. Now it's pretty broad what an artist can engage with, but I do think quite often an artist is always expected to kind of grapple with something that um, uh, relates explicitly to biography or relates very mm. closely to their education. Or there is kind of still the psychobiography approach to the way in which we write about artists, particularly the way um, the way artists are historicized. I'm thinking particularly about women artists and artists of color mm. um, or queer artists, this idea that one wants to graft um a historical or biographical narrative onto the work prior to reading the work on its own terms. Mm. Somehow I feel like with um, artists that don't belong to that, those, those categories I just mentioned, uh, there is more, uh, there is more fluidity somehow. There is a kind of looseness about the way in which I find critics approach their work. So actually that's been an intention of mine recently is what it means to look at the practices of, um, artists who would have been considered, let's say, historically marginal, but not start from the from the discourse of, a, of any kind of marginality, but what would it mean to write that history or to think critically and, and to take that artist's work to be front and centre rather than, let's say, um, adjacent to a wider sociopolitical narrative. Right, or to make the whole point of the work being about disputing the fact that, or proving the fact that that story is worthy of telling. Exactly, yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. And I think that somehow it's where I think um, it's very difficult to uh, to pin down what an exact um, or, or let's say a proper approach would be because I think art critics bring so much of their own baggage to the work and I and I often ask <laughs> myself to what extent are you really reading this work uh, you know it, 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 are you trying to read it in terms of a value judgment or do you feel some kind of perhaps a biographical personal philosophical attachment to the work so for instance um, if I were or to say that I am very interested in what's going on in American politics at the moment. Often when I'm talking to artists, I can't help. And when I'm looking at their work, I can't help but want to ask them or tease out what are those relationships and is this work critical to its immediate political context? But then while I find myself doing that, I think, well, actually, what if this artist wants the work to exist in its own, um, on its own terms? And I think actually be read in a way that's, I don't know, um, more related to Viennese actionism or the French avant-garde and would like to start at a different historical point of departure to the one that I'm offering as a critic. And I think so often we place that lens on the work as being the lens of the immediate present. And I think that one of the really interesting challenges for, for, for critics, curators now should be to place other lenses on art that perhaps that could perhaps offer a different way of filtering that work, you know, both historically and in terms of narrative. Yeah, I'd like to ask you what you think are some useful lenses to look at art now. But also, I was struck by your use of the phrase value judgment, because that, of course, I think is one lens that is, uh, is difficult to avoid. Or even understand. I think it's sometimes hard to gauge. You know, I I, I recently moved to Paris, and and mm. that's meant having a very different different kind of uh, set of um, relationships, but also thinking differently about the community in which I, you know, uh, to which I belong. Mm. And I think that that in a sense, I think there. Are, I always say there are kind of two art worlds. There's the art world that exists at the level of kind of global biennales, where 
uh, people see one another and toast to the success of their friends and, and you know, feel incredibly proud of the achievements that um, that, that artists are making. And I, I think in that for that group of artists that are involved, it tends to be a relatively small one. Um, and I think that somehow in that group of, of among that group, which you could say is the kind of international art community, um, I think there is always a sense of wanting never to offend. I think there's a sense of perhaps being too close to the work of art and too close to the artist to have any kind of critical uh, distance, because I think, mm. as we know now, uh, more than ever, um, things are, are more interconnected. People are implicated. I think people people know that, in fact, uh, you know, if they if they if they um, if they close one door, it might le- it might have serious repercussions. And I think, you know, with mm. digitization and that sense that everyone is interconnected that way, I think people are, are very clear that I think people are very um, uh, eager, rather, not to offend. Um, and then I look at these communities, for instance, you know, Paris and London, where you have these artists that are maybe between five and 10 years out of art school. Uh, none of them have have yet to kind of transcend to that level where their work is shown at an international level. And somehow in those specific communities, and, and they can literally be, you know, in different um, parts of the city, they can actually be in, in cities much more minor than Paris too, around France, mm. where artists are very critical about each other's work. And I sometimes think that it's there that a lot of the really good thinking is happening because I think it's happening among artists who are genuinely in the same boat and who have very little to lose because they haven't gone about building international careers yet. So there's a kind of freedom there. So if I were to kind of separate these two things, I don't think that the former existed in the way that it does now 20 years ago, no, maybe more, maybe 30 years ago. And I think now we're left in a kind of a space in which it becomes very difficult to separate out you know, how one generates a community, a critical community, where people are genuinely protective of critical opinion rather than uh, each other's professional virtues, as it were. I think that that for, for my experience, it would have been possible for me to forge a critical identity had I stayed in London and London alone. Mm. I think I was really lucky that I had opportunities to travel um, and opportunities to work with curators internationally. And I think I was in a position of privilege because lots of more senior inter- in, independent curators were very um, were very kind of supportive from the outset. But I think that in the alternative circumstance where one stays in in in, in a single city and tries to kind of find that community simply by um, uh, simply by uh, uh, working with those who are immediate peers, maybe people they studied with, um, it can be very hard to get that broader perspective and actually to make a kind of uh, a kind of a strong comparative case for what's going on in the art world. I think that all we have at this present time is a sense of a kind of flattening that I think people are very clear is isn't the way we want the art world to be. I mean, the kind of um, the, the the global biennales where the fifty percent of the artists list are artists that we might have seen elsewhere, mm. um, where major art major art um, festivals and and biennales alike mostly you know funded by uh, uh, large galleries, and it's usually the galleries that have artists in the most prominent locations within those international shows. Um, and somehow I've tried to kind of look at that and think what the alternative model could be. And I think in terms of kind of local um, systems, maybe one of the real critical returns can come from 
I think independent publishing is really important, uh, both online and offline. And I think artists, in a way, creating their own um, environments within which they feel safe. And I've seen a lot of that happen in Ghana, where I spend a lot of time and I've supported and worked with a lot of artists. And what's been kind of interesting to see there is that you've had maybe in the last 10 years, a complete pushback against this kind of um I wouldn't call it a globalizing force, but a kind of homogenizing force of the international art world and a kind of rejection of it. And among a kind of handful of um, very motivated students uh, there at the Kwame Nkrumah University, you have this very kind of, um, in a way, uh, yeah, I think you could call it idealistic, but kind of deeply passionate case being fought for a local art scene in which people feel that they collectively belong. Mm-hmm. Uh, rather than artists kind of, as was often the case with contemporary uh, African art, uh, let's say from as early as the the 1970s, the minute artists would get any form of international success, their work would then kind of be transported around the world and they would go to international shows, but it wouldn't really lo- uh, impact the local communities uh, that they came from. Can you tell me a little bit about something, a work of art that you saw recently, maybe in this context or in another, um, that really struck you for whatever reason? Probably one of the the shows that impressed me most recently, and it was a, it was an exhibition that I I'm not necessarily sure it impressed me for any particular reason other than it felt like it demanded critical attention. Was the Cubism show at Centre Pompidou? Mm. And uh, it was a show that was curated, I think, very much from a kind of textbook understanding from for what Cubism has been. So it kind of uh, shifted through the various phases of Cubism, looking at uh, Picasso and Braque in particular, but then looking at the, the you know, Cezannist influence, African influence, and then kind of separating out the differences between um, analytic and, and synthetic Cubism. And I think when I was looking at the, the exhibition, what seemed kind of problematic is that in cases where the exhibition had tried to include uh, works of art from the African continent uh, that had been in French collections and that had, had either passed through the hands of those artists or had directly influenced the work, there was a kind of quotational reference to that work. And I thought it was kind of interesting that in in looking at that kind of exhibition, uh, there was only, let's say, a, a very kind of um, uh, formulated way of talking about a narrative that, 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 that was experienced on multiple levels. And within the context of an exhibition, how you might do that differently. But one of the remarkable moments is towards the end of the exhibition, you had a kind of Cubist work uh, by Matisse, and Matisse is never thought to be a Cubist, but this work completely was, and you couldn't separate it from any other work in the exhibition. Um, And what kind of seemed fundamental to me is that it was placed at a an intersection in the exhibition, actually it was at the very end of the exhibition, where you were kind of, I guess, forced to to go forward and think further about what the relationship between, um, uh, you know, uh, Cubism, modern art and, and African sculpture might have been. But that work itself posed lots of other questions because Matisse, for instance, had, was a was a was a collector of African objects. I um, mean, that, that work had no trace of that. Um, and so somehow was a work that I think was, a, you know, portrait of a woman, kind of conventional for the form and for its time, uh, but seemed to intersect a lot of let's say, other possible narratives of thinking about ways of um, of talking about uh, the relationship between 3D objects, their transformation into 2D um, representation, and then this kind of idea of what how we talk about isms in art. So it was more kind of because it provoked 
I guess, a further reading of the exhibition itself that yeah. I, I I think about that as an example. But I think it would be much nicer if I could give you like a crystal clear artwork that, that kind of st- sticks out. What I'm curious, though, about just to kind of distill it is like, as you're seeing this work in the gallery, what does that feel like? To me, you know, kind of countering an important work of art in a gallery is almost like that moment of uncovering, uh, I think, a kind of a kind of familiar but distant family photograph. I think mm. often when you see a great work of art, it feels as if you always knew it existed. And yeah. I think that's sometimes something that can be quite miraculous, that you somehow feel the sense of familiar, familiarity and at the same time a kind of longing to want to know how that work was made or, you know, what were the thoughts running through the artist's mind at the time. And I think that that, yeah, is often the case, same with, a, with a, you know, encounter of a family photo. You might look at that individual and say, you know, who were they at 16 or, you know, what kind of uh, parties did they go to or, you know, why is my parent wearing that peculiar outfit? But you start to kind of speculate. And I also think it's often peculiarity. I think usually for me, the encounter of a great work of art more or less is usually with an artist that, whose work I knew, whose oeuvre I was entirely uh, familiar with. But it's that work of art that I either didn't know they made or kind of it's beyond belief that they could have made it when they did. Um, And that can happen with contemporary art. It's sometimes, I mean, I'm not so much a curator that projects a sense of futurity onto the work. I don't I don't necessarily need all of the work that I look at or I'm interested in to speak about the now or what's happening and what's cutting edge in terms of technology, because I actually think that when we think about what great art is, we tend more to reflect on the ideas rather than the the, the media or the mm. medium in, you know, in, in, the, in the case of a single work. And I think maybe that's what I would get to. I think that probably um, in, in, in my case, I'm drawn to a set of, um, that, I guess, a specific proposal that that artwork is making about the past, about the present or the future. But indeed, it's not something that's done uh, through, let's say, technical means alone. What makes the work of art impressive is its capacity to inflect um, let's say a reality that is unique to that artist's experience. So I think that it's it's true that when we think about artists that really stand the test of time, and you know you could reel off a, a long list, um, but I think that there's something to be said for those artists that have been kind of completely dogmatic and and kind of steadfast in their belief in a certain idea. And the mm-hmm. form might have changed, of course, painting, sculpture and photography, installation, it doesn't really matter. But you know what that artist stands for somehow. So I think when you see an, a work of art that crystallizes that, that seems to be the moment when you know that it's great art because you know that artist has produced or is in the process of producing exactly what he or she stands for. In terms of ideals, I think every and, and any curator or critic uh, gallerist comes into the world with an ideal of how they think a gallery should be run, what they think the role of a curator should be. Mm. Um, and actually, one of my early mentors uh, was a curator called Oqueen Wazor, who's known, you know, as having a kind of international uh, career in the art world and for a long time has been making kind of large ex- scale exhibitions, you know, to which I referred uh, earlier. Mm. But I think there's something that he said about a change agenda. And I think that if you think about people like Gertrude Stein and you think about that particular moment, that early 20th century moment where in which there was a great deal of collaboration between critics and curators, I think there was also a great amount of intentionality. And I think somehow with the stress of Um, modern times, naturally, uh, people don't necessarily feel like they can be as generous with um, thought anymore. So in Mm. fact, when curators and artists 
critics collaborate. It's too often, I think, the case that that collaboration is a transactional one. And I think if if one is ever to gain a kind of um, an elevated understanding of what an artist is trying to do, you really have to spend time in the kind of in-between. You have to go to delis, you have to go uh, to, to restaurant bars, you know, wherever, and continue those conversations beyond the confinement of the studio. So I guess what I was going to say is often I, I sometimes don't know that an artist is making great art until I know really what their intention is. And I think that once that intention is reflected in the work, I think it's somehow when that artist has reached um, a point of, of conclusion. That's not to say that their career is ended, but I think that somehow where you can you can somehow get something of the uh, the essence of that artist's intention in the work. I think there's not much more you can ask for. And I think across media, I think that would be true of, of, of any good artist. Hmm. Even if you uh, disagree with the intention? Um, yeah, I think even if I disagree with the intention, I, I can actually think of an example. There was yeah. a, an artist that I worked with um, some time ago who had decided that uh, they wanted to do a project around a particular community that I felt didn't need to be uh, part of the work, I think particularly because it felt like that might have been an exploitative relationship rather than one that would be generative for that community. It seemed mm. a kind of one-sided relationship. But I guess the goal of the the kind of the 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 aim for that artist then became to prove otherwise and I guess because it was a curatorial project there was a greater reciprocity because I wasn't only meeting the work at the point of its conclusion I was actually part of the commissioning process and I think that changes a great amount I always sometimes question if I would think work that I've been involved in commissioning was interesting if I looked at it as a critic and I think <laughs> right. that's a really kind of like you know it, it, it gets into a really complicated territory because you, you then kind of pose the question of um, you know, it's almost as if uh, you think about chefs cooking what they eat. I think yeah. you you somehow and 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 I and I wouldn't posit myself as a chef, but it's more like you're you're helping the artist find the right ingredients. You're creating the venue. You're creating the kind of holistic um, the holistic environment to use a kind of crude example. But I think mm -hmm. that well, the preciousness that of authorship, I guess. Exactly the preciousness of authorship. <laughs> But I think that looking at um, that relationship between uh, commissioning, curating, writing, mm. uh, presenting exhibitions, I think there's a huge amount of slippage because, uh, you, know, you know, listening to other curators and writers talk about this, um, what I find to be most often the case is when curators start working on exhibitions in, a, in an institutional capacity, they stop writing critically about artists anyway. One, because they mm. have no time. But I think there's a second reason. It becomes more and more difficult to write about artists when you have that sense of attachment to the work, to not only the work in its present form, but it's, it's the stages of its production. Mm. And I think returning to that idea of, of, of Gertrude Stein and Picasso, it's because I think there wasn't necessarily um, uh, a sense at the time that um, an artwork was a traveling, I guess, you know, you know, photographic reproduction was certainly something that had been newly innovated. And I think that um, was part of, you know, French 19th century culture, but certainly not at the level of art journals that were dispersed all around the world. So I think there was a sense of kind of intimacy between the critic and the artist that kind of lent itself perfectly to a kind of um, a dialogue of, of, of reciprocity that I think 
turned out obviously to be a very generative one and I think is the kind that I guess I'm aspiring to with the artists that I work with. And I guess just a little other thing related to that early take modern experiences mm-hmm. that you might want to say why I admired Gilbert and George. And that was a moment in time. I don't think I've thought about them a great deal since, but I think it was just this idea that here you had artists that upon immediate encounter with the work, perhaps because there was something incredibly uh, narrative and representational about it, you got a sense of what they were trying to achieve, um, you know, mm. to shock the bourgeoisie maybe, or to talk about the kind of intersectionality of identities that existed within London at the time. Um, and as a Black Briton observing that work, that felt very real to me. But it's also true to say that at the time, there were no works by artists of colour necessarily on view in any prominent sense in the Tate's collection. And I think maybe had there been images um, that reflected, you know, my own image, I mean, yeah. I might have been, I might have been drawn to them. I think my relationship to art has changed along with, let's say, the kind of discourse around its production and reception. And I think what I'm finding very rich about the time we're in now is that it seems like there is more openness than there has ever been, at least in my experience, to looking at uh, artists' work not because they're not because of their identity per se, but because they've made a valuable contribution to art history. And in fact, the art historical education I received and the one that I encountered within galleries and museums uh, simply didn't reflect that reality um, at that point. So a lot's changed. I mean, maybe this is a hopeful situation yeah. then for the future, but do you have sort of a resentment or any feelings like that about those kinds of oversights? Yeah, I think it, I would, would try not to kind of think about it in terms of res, of a result. Sure, that's a strong I, word. Yeah. <laughs> no, but but I think it I think it's a word that a lot of people would associate with it, and I think there's certainly people I know that don't know that's how they feel. But hmm. you know, in terms of how they they relate to these institutions, I think resentment would be an appropriate word to use. But I hmm. think in my case, I couldn't be thankful enough for the fact that the art world that I entered was an international one. So I didn't feel a sense that I would have to engage in, let's say, a certain kind of um, uh, art world politics in order to achieve um, uh, a kind of growth as a critic and a curator. I found that that, you know, as many artists do, particularly artists that um, have come from marginal communities, that recognition has come later than it was due. And I Mm. think it's a shame quite often that those institutions don't question that if there is a is is an issue around um, uh, presenting uh, diverse approaches to art making in their museum that should also be reflected in the the staff they hire at every level um, but it should also be reflected in the communities that they're trying to reach and I guess it was my father's insistence that got me in front of the the work of Gilbert and George at the Tate Modern but I think without that um, there certainly wouldn't have been any reason why a young black boy let's say growing up in East London would have felt compelled to visit such a museum. Um, And I think in a way, one of the things that um, seems to be important uh, going forward is that when people talk about these, I guess, issues of what what great art is, we actually widen that kind of, um, I, I guess it's a kind of set of values um, so often I hear people saying about a great work of art as being something kind of um, perverse or <laughs> something that transcends uh, or that uses theory in a sophisticated way or something that's conceptually rich or something that is kind of, um, you know, a- against the didacticism of kind of easy messaging. Um, but somehow I think that that assumes that every art 
artist is trained under a under a schema yes. where in fact they would feel compelled to make art against a certain grain and actually quite often when we kind of i guess um impose those codes or values on art making i don't think we give artists much room for maneuver and i think an artist living in pakistan or an artist living in uh in 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 uh, lagos might feel differently about what the codes are of great art because they would have inherited an entirely uh different uh, let's say uh visual education um, and I think that's really important to just mention, because I think certainly for me, that's been a, a process of of kind of learning and unlearning, uh, because my family is, is, is part West African, part European. Mm. But I myself have had a European education, but I've spent a lot of time working with artists from the African continent and the diaspora. So it's been a kind of corrective um, process, it, you know, in my case as well, and and that's for someone that's had um, a kind of let's say a, 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 a transcontinental upbringing. Um, I can only imagine how much more difficult it would be if you were coming from a position that was you know that was any more um, protected or sheltered in terms of what you were exposed to as an artistic form. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I wonder to that point um, what the differences you felt uh, between your experiences being in London versus Paris because I know there's completely different histories of you know transnationalism and, and yeah. art critique and and yeah. uh, reference making well I think I, we have this conversation quite often in in the context of, of freeze magazine where I'm a contributing editor because there are uh, you know um, there are contributing editors based all around the world each reporting on different uh, cities and each with different interests that they bring to the magazine. But I think that one of the kind of curious things is that when you arrive in a new city, particularly a city like Paris, where the culture of gallery visiting and, and museum going is so much richer than it is in London, mm. uh, people visit galleries and museums, I would say, more regularly. I wouldn't, I couldn't draw up the statistics, but it certainly feels that way at, at sort of eye level. Mm. Um, and I think that there's always a conversation happening about art. It's not necessarily the most interesting art that's on view at that time. But certainly if there was a new exhibition opening at the Pompidou, uh, people might have seen it or they would know about it or it would be kind of um, there would seem to be a a higher level of visibility given towards uh, cultural production and, 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 you know, art, the arts more generally. I think in London, there was a certain there is a certain sense that the art world is kind of predicated on an idea of exclusivity. Mm. I think that's partly inherent to the way in which London has always wanted to be the most cutting edge. And I think artists have kind of fought to have a position in which they they could kind of break break a certain barrier, um, whether it's a you know, barrier of kind of um, uh, in terms of, you know, what they present to the gallery or a barrier in terms of the discourses that they're interested in. Um, and somehow in Paris, I think that, that people have, there's a strong intellectual tradition of debate, you know, stemming back to the 19th century, there's the Salon, but there are also its contemporary iterations. And you think of somewhere like the colony that's run by Cadaratia, where there are really strong debates happening around uh, decoloniality, decolon- uh, debates around identity politics that I think are really generative for France and, you know, Paris specifically to be having. I think in London, there is no equal to that. Um, And I think in the cases where institutions are trying to uh, reflect, I think that the only thing that exists that I think at a a level in Paris, it's, it's much more overt is the kind of gap between, let's say the kind of um, the, the activities that, that are, 
the, the activities of the contemporary art world uh, that are very fast moving and fast changing. And then let's say this very kind of slow, historicized uh, way of making exhibitions that museums are still very, um, you know, chained to somehow. Yeah. And I think that has to do with forms of education. I think in order to make exhibitions in Paris, you tend to have had to have become, uh, you know, specialist in that subject matter. And I can't think of many curators in London that are specialized in anything. Right. Um, and that's that's not, not a bad thing. I just think it's, it's that those curators have kind of been flexible and had careers where they've been able to work with lots of different artists. They've been able yeah. to work both historically and with the contemporary. Um, and I think that maybe in Paris that has to do also with a deeper sense of a historical reckoning that people want to have this dialogue between contemporary art and its and its broader art historical narrative. But it sometimes means that there's a kind of protectionism over that history mm. and also a kind of such a kind of nostalgia that's given the, the, to the weight, particularly of, you know, the, the great masters of, of of modern painting, but people aren't willing to uh, start to, let's say, sort of shift the needle in terms of what's appropriate when it comes to re-narrating those art histories. And I can think of one example I'm very excited about, uh, Denise Morel's show, uh, The Black Model, that's coming to Paris in the spring, I think will be an exception. But I think it speaks volumes that that's a show about French art that's coming from an African-American perspective rather than one that's being generated in Europe where most of this art was made. Right. And I think there is still an inability if there's something that connects London and Paris to talk about these very difficult subjects um, in a way that's historically reflexive um, and not merely kind of, um, yeah, presentist, because I think often people want to make out as if the institution is is having a moment, let's say it's kind of sea change, um, and that nothing, nothing came before that. But I think it's deeply important to reflect on how uninclusive these institutions have been prior to that moment, um, and ways of actually um, integrating that rather than with a single exhibition or a single narrative or inviting one artist to actually speak really broadly about uh, questions of gender, identity, politics in modernism and to actually flesh them out in a way that gives people a kind of comparative understanding of where we were and where we are. Momus the Podcast is edited by Jacob Irish, features original music by Kyle McRae, and assistant production from Mitra Shriram. We would like to thank Osei Bonsu for his eloquent contribution to this episode. This has been episode nine of Momus the Podcast.